0: Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm Fiona Sutherland, dietitian from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I interview dietitians from all over the world who are experts in health at every size, the non-diet approach and mindfulness-based practice. These are a collection of interviews by a dietitian for dietitians and nutritionists, so that we can build a strong community of wonderful professionals who share an inclusive vision of well-being for everybody in everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series. Well, today you're in for a fierce and feisty ride as I speak with Isabel Fox and Duke, who many of you will be familiar with as the creator of her program Stop Fighting Food. It's really fantastic and it's free. I mean, who doesn't love free, right? video training program for women who want to, quote unquote, stop feeling crazy around food. As Isabel shares here, she has a lived experience of emotional eating, binge eating and chronic weight cycling. And through her her own experiences and also working alongside many, 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 probably I'd say hundreds, if not thousands, of other people over the years. She's really developed a new paradigm of thought, which is aligned with health at every size and intuitive eating principles. Uh, For those of you who are professionals, you can find out lots more about her at isabelfoxandduke.com. And uh, she offers training uh, and coaching programs for both um, professionals and for the general public. So check out her free training series and her guide, which is really gorgeous. It's called How to Not Eat Cake Really Fast, Standing Up when no one's looking so she offers heaps of free stuff which gives you an insight into the way that she explains the concepts around her teaching style i really like it if you are up for a no holds barred just uh, straight up you know take it as you see her type of person then Isabel's really for you. Uh, and it was such a pleasure to chat with her about everything from weight stigma, the problems with our weight bias training programs, from, um, our definitions of recovery and how all of these things really get in the way of understanding people's personal lived experience. So I hope you really enjoy this chat with Isabel Fox and Duke. Check her out and, uh, really look forward to seeing you over on the Mindful Dietitian Facebook group. Um, where we have, again, lots of fierce and feisty discussions, love it, in that group. Um, Or check out our website, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au, where you'll find a mountain of resources, um, reading, uh, training programs, online events, etc., etc. So look forward to seeing all you mindful dietitians somewhere online or in person very soon. Enjoy! (laughs) And a big good morning to Isabel Fox and Duke. It's so awesome to have you on today, Isabel. I'm just, just, um, uh, yeah, pretty super excited to chat with you.
1: Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here, Fiona. This is such a treat. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. Like, it's, it's, it's kind of magic when we're able to connect at quite early here, Australian time, and then you're in San Francisco, and yes. I'm, I'm assuming it's afternoon time, is it? Yeah, it's about three PM. So yeah, I'm afternoon. Yeah, we're like
1: you're like a whole day ahead of me. It's like the future there.
0: <laughs> I know. <Yeah. laughs> we're, we're really special like that. We um we have these this magic fortune telling uh, the talent over here. So if you want to know what your evening's going to look like, then all you have to do is call an Australian or a New Zealander, and we'll be able to tell you how that. <laughs> Perfect. Good yeah. To, yeah.
1: Good to keep that in mind. So yeah, but thanks for having me. I'm, I'm super excited to chat with you as always.
0: Yeah, it's great. Um, so Isabel, tell, tell us a little bit about, um, about how you, you know, about the, the route that you took to get where you are today. I mean, there'll, there'll be lots of people listening that are really, really familiar with your work, but maybe some are uh, not so much. So if you want to just, if you don't mind just giving us a quick rundown.
1: Yeah, so for those who are familiar, this will sound familiar. Um, and for those who are brand new, I always I always start my interviews saying that, you know, my story started with when I was put on a diet when I was three years old, right? So I don't actually even have conscious memories of not being on a diet. I was put on a diet at such a young age by my pediatrician. It was the recommendation of my pediatrician to my parents um, that they tried to weight control me. Right. Um, I was high on the baby BMI scale, you know of course, this pediatrician, this medical authority you know she 's in the ninety eighth percentile for weight or, or whatever the case may be, it was somewhere in the ninety percentile for weight for her for her age or for her height. Um, you know, telling my parents, you, you gotta do something about this. You gotta, you know, you gotta make sure. You better watch your weight. Better make sure, you know, fat baby, no good. My you know, God. and, um, of course, you know, I think, you know, my parents, uh, you know, were, and particularly, I think my mother, who was, you know, really tasked with being in charge of my food as a child. Um, you know, of course, I'm sure she was like, oh, the doctor is telling mm. us my, are my baby's too fat. You know, mm. you know I, got to do something about this. And I think, you know, I feel terrible for my mother in retrospect for all of the, um, of course, this led into so much yo-yo dieting and disordered eating into my teen years and adulthoods and so on. Um, And I spent so much time being resentful of my mother, of course, uh, only to sort of really look back now and think, oh my God, my poor mother was being told by this medical authority who everyone thought was, you know, oh, you know, Medical authority saying the right thing. It must be true. You know, must put child on diet. Uh Um, So I actually feel really terrible for my mother that she was, she was put in that position where she was given that information. um, You know, and and that was, uh, Anyway, uh, how my story started. Right. So I had no conscious memories of not having dieted. Um, I have no conscious memories of not feeling completely out of control around food. Right. Like feeling like food was this like toy that I couldn't play with and that I just wanted to play with it all day long. And, you know, actively try to control myself. I would just never stop eating. Um, And I felt, uh, you know, I remember doing things like, you know, sneaking food out of the kitchen at a very young age, all of these sort of typical uh, kind of binge eating behaviors as a child, and of course, into adulthood, you know, these behaviors continued as I sort of effectively yo-yo dieted from this very, very young age, it didn't occur to me that there was another way to eat or another way for me to be, I just thought that that's the way I was, I just thought that I was really broken around food that, you know, my internal um, ability to Quote regulate food on my own, right? Like my my natural uh, ability to you know know when to stop and start was just broken. I didn't have it. I needed to take direction from someone or something outside of myself. I was constantly reading diet books, you know, very obsessed with food. I of course wanted to be a nutritionist. I mean, as so many young eating Mm, girls, so many young eating (laughs) girls' dream is to be a nutritionist. You know, well of course. I
0: mean, you've accumulated all this knowledge. You want to put it to some use, don't you?
1: Right. Right. was like, I was like, I'm obsessed with this. I might as well make this my career. People say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, you know, what are your interests? I'm like, well, my (laughs) (laughs) interest is food and nutrition. So I guess that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah. So I ended up, uh, you know, in treatment, Uh, for binge eating disorder by the time I was 19. You know, you can imagine the things that sort of led up to that. Lots of yo-yo dieting, lots of various different kinds of disordered eating behaviors, Um, many of which were undiagnosed and unnoticed for Mm -hmm. a very, very long time while they were going on because I wasn't thin. Um, I was normal weight or, quote, overweight overweight um, most of my teen years. Uh, so I was never diagnosed as such, you know, like doctors would look at me and say, Oh, why don't you just try this to try You know, to get your weight under control. Why don't you just try that to try and get your weight under control? You know, I was just given mm-hmm. more and more diet tips. Meanwhile, I'm like, I've read everything guys. Mm-hmm. I know everything. Um, mm-hmm. and I was it's so never-
0: problematic. That's so problematic. You know, and, and what it does is it, we, we know how important timely eating disorder treatment is. You know, timeliness is everything so oh,
1: yeah um, but most people but this is the common experience of yeah. most people I mean I think that today you know if you do not have I mean especially this was in the you know pre-body positivity being any kind mm-hmm. of thing on the internet you know if you didn't sort of meet a weight qualification or if you weren't actively um, engaging in something like purging for instance uh, you, there was no diagnosis, right? Like, you know, being obsessed with food in and of itself without being super thin or without purging was, there was like no diagnosis to be bad. It was just like, Oh, poor girl can't get her weight under control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it was totally belittled, despite the fact that I was so miserable, I had no life, I was completely consumed by this obsession. Mm. Um, the reality of the matter is, is that I was purging at one point, although I kept that uh, tight under the lid. Um, you know, didn't obviously she didn't want to share this with professionals at the time, but yeah, I mean, I would say there was like you know nearly two decades of very, very, very active eating disorder behavior that went undetected or in some ways encouraged, mm. um, as was the case when I was getting all these diet tips. You know, I remember I remember being in my pediatrician's office when I was at you know 11 or 12 years old, and she she you know the, the the scariest part of going to the pediatrician's office every year was just getting on the scale. I mean, the whole office visit every year that I would go with my annual physical as a child it all revolved around the scale you know like I would would literally like I would try to fast leading up to being weighed at the pediatrician's office I would do all sorts I mean the entire my entire relationship with the pediatrician, my entire life, actually revolved around the scale and and what I was going to, how how that was going to work out for me this year. Um, I remember my sister, and this has kind of like become like a big joke in our family. My sister, I remember, you know, she, you know, of course, had a similar was brought up to have a similar relationship with our pediatrician at the time. And there was one year where she went to the pediatrician and she hadn't gained any weight. And everyone was like high-fiving her. You didn't gain weight this oh year. Oh
0: god! And she,
1: came, and she came home and she told my mother, mom, mom, I didn't gain any weight. I didn't gain any weight. Like it was like the greatest accomplishment oh. of her life. Mm. So yeah. And meanwhile, I remember, and I have this very, very vivid memory. I usually don't get into this much detail about my pediatricians, my experience with my pediatrician and the very Dramatic experiences I had with my pediatrician, but because I know I'm speaking with other wellness professionals, I think it's relevant. Um, I remember having an experience when I was, you know, 11 or 12 years old, and you know, got on the scale, did the thing. I was, you know, terrified leading up to it. Oh my gosh, what's the number going to be this year? And you know, my pediatrician looks at my sheet and she says, "Isabel, you gained eight pounds." What's going on? Like such, so, mm. so, like such a punitive tone. Mm. Like I've never heard anything like, and I just burst into tears. Oh, you know, like burst in. I'm, a, I'm like 11 or 12 years old. I'm a middle school girl. Yeah. And the doctor You've gained eight pounds. What's going on, young lady? And I just lost it in the doctor's office. I was just hysterically sobbing. At that point, I was like on, like you know, I was um, vegan for the purpose of weight loss for no Mm -hmm. other reason other than that. That was like the diet that I was on at that time in my life. And I just, I was just, I just could not believe it. I was just freaking, just completely lost my mind. And that was the last time I ever saw that pediatrician. That was when my mother really got the joke. No, we need to, we need to switch doctors. This is Okay, um, not that my future doctors thereafter were so much better or anything, um, but yeah, like it was there, it became very clear to my parents after that visit when I'm sobbing in the doctor's yeah. office. And what's crazy to me is that no, after sobbing, sobbing in the doctor's office about the fact that I gained eight pounds, didn't. Even, you know, it didn't trigger any alarm bells for anyone about Uh, what my relationship with food must look Mm. like. I mean, this was, and I told her, I was like, I'm, I'm vegan, I'm this and that, I'm like doing this, I'm doing that, right? And I'm crying about the fact that I've gained eight pounds. It's like, no one even thought about, no, it never even occurred to somebody like, this isn't normal. Like, Mm. this is not, and and I hate, and I don't use the word normal lately, but like, Mm -hmm. it didn't even occur to somebody like, this is not okay. Mm. Some girl is like, actively, clearly trying everything in her power, spending all of this mental and physical energy trying to control her weight, trying to control her weight, only to burst into tears violently at the doctor's office because the doctor had told her she'd gained eight pounds. Like, what is wrong with this picture? And it just it didn't, it didn't trigger a al- I mean, it didn't seem to trigger alarm bells for anyone other than my mother, who was like, we've got to get the hell out of this doctor's office. Yeah. Um, so anyway so yeah but so you know this is my relationship with food uh, you know for my whole life until I ended up in, in rehab for binge eating disorder only reason I ended up in rehab for binge eating disorder is because I was using drugs at the time and I got kicked out of school oh, okay I was, yeah. I was, I was, using... was gonna
0: ask how, how you kind of got yourself into treatment because I'm like oh this yeah. tra- this trajectory is looking like you're kind of um flying. oh yeah. flying under the radar for a long time oh, yeah
1: oh I was flying so under the radar I mean I would still be struggling I Think I would, I I don't think I ever would have received any treatment whatsoever. Um, unclear if I would have discovered discovered health at every size, intuitive eating, all of these things. I definitely would not have gotten into treatment if I had not gotten to the point where I was so desperate to lose weight that I was like, screw it, I'm just turning to cocaine. I mean, that's where I was at. Like, by the time I got into college, I was so desperate, I was like, I don't care. You know, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And I started using, you know, stimulants. I started using stimulant med- medications and I didn't care where they came from. Like, you know, prescription, not prescription, illicit, didn't matter to me. Cocaine, Adderall, I mean, whatever the hell I could get my hands on. I was like, this is the only thing that, quote, works mm. for weight suppression.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Work, works being a really <laughs> unusual term. Loose, loose term yeah. there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ended up getting kicked out of school um, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, for drug related reasons, um, after having been, you know, super good kid. You know, I was a good yeah. kid, stri- you know, straight A's my whole life, you know, went to a very prestigious college, got very quickly the second the drugs entered the picture. I mean, like, I'm always like, you want to see somebody end up in rehab, hand somebody with disordered eating a stim, st- you know, yes. stimul- stimulant yeah. drugs. Yeah. That's the end of that story. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I, um, ended up in binge eating disorder rehab. Well, they, I mean, I was sent away for, for rehab for, for drug abuse, but the second I was in the end, I mean, I was very honest with my intake people. I was like, Hey, look, I was like, I'll stop using drugs tomorrow. If you can help me figure out how to stay this weight without them.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm. And, 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 and this is what drives me completely bananas. The intake people at my rehab, this was a eating disorder, drug addiction, dual diagnosis rehab facility. One of like the best in the country, theoretically, you know, my parents spared no expense to send me to like the fanciest possible rehab that they could afford. Um, You know, in the intake conversation call, I said, I was like, I will stop doing drugs tomorrow. If you can teach me how to quote, stay this weight without drugs. And you know what they said to me? They were like, yep, we can do that. Oh no. I was holding my breath. I was like, they said, they said, said, absolutely. We will teach you how to control your weight without drugs. That's what recovery looks like.
0: (laughs) So, so in other words, in some bodies, we're going to recommend what we actually, um, diagnose as highly disordered in another group of the same uh, people with eating disorders.
1: Right they were like oh right and the way I see it is like no no you just have to have it's like it's like no no you just can't have one of the bad eating disorders you don't have to throw up God. or you, right? it's like you know I mean that was kind of in retrospect looking back I see that that's sort of the message that I was getting at the time I had such a distorted I just such a fucked up on the idea of
0: what recovery was right I, well no wonder I,
1: I thought recovery, and I think a lot of people, especially people on the binge eating disorder. I mean, I'm pretty, I think pretty much across the boards, most people in the binge eating disorder treatment spectrum get the message that recovery is thinness, yes, like with your food looking a certain way, right? It's like totally, right? It's thinness and your food looking quote, normal, Mm -hmm. whatever the fuck that means.
0: Absolutely. Look, I couldn't agree more. I think that message is really strong. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, not only in the general community, but then also in the, in the treatment community, I see it all the time. And sometimes the messages are a little more subtle and sometimes they're just overt. They're overt, you know, it's like, um, you know, if you, if you reduce, uh, if you reduce your binging, then doesn't it make sense that your weight would reduce? Well, no, not always. No, no yeah.
1: not always. because I- binging, FYI, pretty much always goes hand in hand with restriction. Like, right, you know, like,
0: right, right. That's exactly there's right. There's no
1: such thing as binging. If somebody is binging violently, they are restricting this. Yeah. I can
0: pretty much guarantee you. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, um, and, it, and it just perpetuates this narrative that recovery comes along with a weight outcome as well, particularly when people do live in larger bodies and mm-hmm. the and the stigma and bias that that occurs not only in eating disorder treatment but then also in other medical and healthcare settings. So mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I don't begrudge people having that desire. Um, be, uh, sorry, I don't, it's not that, um, I don't, I certainly don't uh, support uh, support them going along with the behaviours that are associated with that desire. But that desire is completely understandable considering the messages that people have got all their lives, and then in eating disorder treatment, it's like,
1: ah! Oh i mean yeah i feel I mean, I feel terrible for patients who I mean I mean it just goes back to the just sort of just general idea that everyone is just supposed to be thin, right, whether that be an eating disorder treatment or anywhere else, everyone 's just supposed to be thin, right like that 's the message that we 're getting all across the boards, and unfortunately, in eating disorder treatment as well. I mean, like the entire medical model, and we talked about this a little bit offline before we came, unfortunately, the entire medical model, the entire way that all, pretty much all nutritionists, all therapists, anyone who is doing anything remotely related to quote, Western medicine, um, is being taught through the lens of you're supposed to be thin, Right. right? So, you know... It makes sense, right? Like I always say like the problem with eating disorder treatment is that eating disorder treatment is being given by people who are going to school in a fat phobic system, right? Like eating disorder treatment as a concept, right? All the clinical and medical research around eating disorders is being done through the lens of fat phobia, right? The Mm -hmm. Western medical model is fat phobia. So you, by definition, you have people treating eating disorders, who are themselves have been trained, taught, and are probably Mm -hmm. also personally invested in fat phobia for one reason or another. There within lies the rub of eating disorder treatment, in my opinion.
0: Yeah could not agree more, could not agree more. And what that does is it, it not only perpetuates the myths around eating disorder, but then precludes uh, people in all bodies from getting really decent treatment or actually any treatment at all, to be honest. It stops yeah. people from being diagnosed properly. Um, and overall, it, it um, shuts down quality of life for everybody, whoever struggles with eating. So it, it means that eating disorder treatment belongs um, in the domain of people in certain bodies. and um, and And those bodies are um, are elevated to a point where they 're the people that are going to get treatment and they 're going to get intervention and they 're going to get um, all the funding and the research as well the research keep, keeps being funded uh, keeps being funneled into the same subsets of eating disorders and that 's something I know you and I and a lot of other people are really trying hard to shift because mm-hmm. um, while these conversations are you know while the conversations around Eating disorders in general are really helpful. You know, sometimes I think the conversations are around, you know, eating disorder, say, education, where the mm-hmm. deeper, deeper, and more meaningful conversations about how we can get people into timely, um, timely treatment and how we can help people um, access quality of life around around food and and the way they relate to their bodies. Um, those deeper conversations around. Um, policy and politics and sociocultural influences, they are not being had.
1: Right. And I think that that sort of also is a big issue when, you know, when it comes to sort of the Western medical model itself, right? The Western medical model typically does not take sociology or social justice issues very seriously, despite the fact that sociology and social justice issues color the research, right? Mm-hmm. By definite, right. By definition, everyone who is doing this research is a human being who lives in a culture and a society yeah, right. and biasing them right? Mm-hmm. So, but this is not looked upon, right? Like people look at, quote, science, like it is, obje- like it is all just objective fact, right? Oh, yeah. That's what, uh, that's yeah. what science, <laughs> is. science is objective fact, right? Like people just are like, oh, statistics says, you know, meanwhile, if anyone who's ever like really taken seriously any statistics class they've ever told, guess what? Statistics are like their primary usages for lying. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you amazing. can twist anything you like. <laughs> right, right, exactly. There is so much, I mean, I think Science is incredibly, incredibly biased. Um, uh, Most of the research that we're looking at around weight is heavily, 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 Uh, excuse me, is heavily biased and skewed towards weight normative ideas, right? So I think that that's, um, you know, sort of like another really, really big issue in um, any of these fields that are sort of under the umbrella of, quote, Western medicine, right? Um, Is that the, is understanding that, you know, you're being trained within a very, very, very specific and heavily biased perspective. Mm. And so it is really hard to come out from under that training. Um, I think that that's really the challenge is to, you know, how do you start really taking seriously Um, looking at research and being like, okay, I'm going to actively start to look for the biases that might exist in this research, right? Like, what are the words that are being used in this particular journal, in this particular study that I'm looking at in this particular uh, medical literature uh, that sort of tip me off or could be like a potential hint um, that this research is biased, right? So, you know, the most obvious example, obviously being, you know, when you look at research studies around weight, you know, there's always almost always a confusion between correlation and causation when it comes to health outcomes and weight. Um, Yet, you know, people just look at the study and are just like, oh, oh, science says, science says fatness causes X disease, science says, right? And so, you know, I think just really, really, um, it's so, so I think the the challenge for most people is uh, in this field, right, is to kind of, you know, sort of take a step back and just work under the assumption that the research is biased, right? and look for those biases and sort of look into, okay, is this research that I can trust given the fact that I'm, I have an eye out for bias
0: going in. And I think it's the, I think it's the least we can, um, we owe ourselves and our clients too, is to be able to look at the research through a critical lens and to be able to see it for what it is and to be able to, um, offer, um, not only accurate information to our clients but also what matters to them what what is what is the information that's going to be most meaningful to them with what they are struggling with so i guess one of the things with research that ticks me off quite a bit is that Um, especially when it's with larger numbers of people, is that, well, there's a human being. There there are individual human beings in that study and any one of those human beings can be our clients. So regardless of what even big studies say, it's like there's a human being sitting in front of me and the priority is what is going on for them. And they are not, every human being is a complex creature. You know, so it's...
1: There's um, a specific uh, book I was reading. Like a client of mine actually uh, sent me a quote from a medical ethics book that she was uh, recently reading, which basically said, you know, if you actually ever like, you know, look at sort of like a medical ethics textbook, one of the few things that you'll see when it comes to um, medical ethics and challenges in medical ethics, medical discussions become difficult in, you know, one of a couple different ways. And I'm quoting here. One, when there is a notable divergence between quality of life as assessed by physicians in contrast to quality of life as assessed by patients, right? Oh. So, I meaning like, the physicians, right, this is, like, one major issue that comes up in medical ethics is when the sort of doctors are basically not paying attention to quality of life, right? Like, they're just going after outcomes and not actually so treating their patients like humans, right? This becomes a huge medical ethics issue is when, effectively, it is, runs contrary to medical ethics when you're treating your Patients like robots instead of mm-hmm. humans, effectively. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of my version of it. Um, and then the other, you know, sort of notable thing that, that she happened to quote from this uh, medical ethics book was, uh, you know, medical discussions become difficult when, quote, the enhancement of normal qualities, quote, normal qualities, mm-hmm. is thought as the goal of medicine rather than the well-being of a patient. So I, I think interesting. that's interesting obviously also incredibly relevant um, when it comes to uh, weight. I mean, I get into conversations with my friends who are doctors all the time and we end up having a sort of like workaround, whatever we're talking about, weight, weight weight-related illness, what we're treating. It sort of becomes this sort of uh, round cycle, like this sort of like roundabout cycle where I'll say, okay, but if we're assuming that diabetes and you know weight, for instance, are not actually causally potentially related, but also maybe more correlated Mm -hmm. for various reasons just as a for instance right and she's like well but if we take the sugar out wouldn't they just lose weight and then they don't she'll be like oh but then well okay then, then there must be something wrong with the thyroid or there must be there, the fatness must be the problem for some other there's this assumption that something that's abnormal must be illness yeah in fact right and so I think that there is this is sort of where things also really really go awry as sort of you know medical ethics are compromised when norm quote normality which is obviously culturally defined, Mm -hmm. um, is sought after as the goal of medicine. And that's obviously happening
0: Mm. all all Mm. over the place in
1: unquestioned fashion, you know, just fully unquestioned, it's like, it's like a head scratcher to most uh, medical professionals or, you know, cl- clinicians that we wouldn't go after quote normality as the mm. goal of medicine.
0: That's really interesting because as you were talking it, what I was, what was kind of running through my head was, um, you know, perhaps a lack of tolerance for um, what, what we might call, you know, suboptimal health or health that is not, um, perfect, you know, and how we pursue, um, answers and how we pursue, um, solutions to everything when things aren't going the way we wish. And maybe that's just a general human intolerance for things not being the way we want them to be.
1: Yeah. And I think it also, that in particular also has a lot to do with sort of like black and white thinking, like sort of misunderstanding health as something that is spectrum rather than health as something that you either have or you don't
0: have. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: I feel like I'm always trying to explain that to my clients. Like, I'm like, health is not a thing that you have or you don't have. It's not like death or life, right? It's There's a spectrum. Like, health is a spectrum, and we're all just kind of, like, bouncing around this spectrum. We're probably going to start out on one end of the spectrum, and then we die on the other. But you know, between birth and death, it's just kind of like bouncing around the spectrum, like seeing what happens, like up and down, up and down, you know, trend line always ends up at death. FYI, for anyone who's confused, for anyone who's confused trend line always ends up at death, uh, you know, in the interim between birth and death, we have just, you know, spectrum and people just sort of like bouncing around, around the spectrum.
0: Um, uh, and that's, that's what we're funny. dealing with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah we we yeah we're not real good at um yeah we're not real good at um tolerating the bouncing around in the spectrum are we which i mean brings us to um people's um uh ideas around um diet mentality you know and and the the dichotomous ideas around around food and eating and bodies and that somehow we can we can prolong life and we can prevent death through mm. eating in certain ways Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which I think is one of the elixirs that is sold from wellness professionals. It's like, if yeah. you do things in this way, then you can prevent the very thing that's going to be freaking inevitable type thing. Right,
1: right. 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 It's so, it's such a load. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that also, you know, it kind of also goes back to the, you know, just circles right back to the quality of life conversation. Right. I mean, like yeah. sometimes I'm like, I would rather be able to eat what I want and diet 70, than eat perfectly and die at 75? Like, oh my God.
0: Oh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. easy, Absolutely.
1: Easy, easy answer. And you know what? The reality of the situation is we don't even have evidence that if I were to eat quote perfectly, whatever that meant, I would even live five years longer. Like you yeah, don't actually right. even have that evidence, but even if it did exist, I would still choose to take <laughs> the five years off of my life if it meant that I could yeah. actually live my best quality of life right now.
0: Like n- easy answer. Absolutely. I'm going to Disney World. I'm eating the hot dogs. I'm having the donuts. I'm Mm -hmm. going to the beach, doing whatever the hell I want. Right. Right. Yeah. Because that is life. That's life. You know, if that's, if those are the choices that you want to make, whatever, whatever leads to a full and meaningful life for you, given Mm -hmm. um, whatever limitations come your way, then that is your prerogative. Right. I also think that,
1: you know, when it comes to like giving people specific, like food, basically food policing and things like that, you know, every time we food police, we're also obviously contributing to stigma right. and there's some argument that, I mean, there's quite a bit of evidence, a growing body of evidence that stigma is actually much worse for somebody's long-term physical health outcomes. Yeah. Screw emotional quality of life. Even physical health outcomes are heavily influenced by weight stigma and sort of, you know, the degree to which people perceive themselves as a failure. Absolutely. Right. And so that's also something really, really important to keep in mind, I think, that when we're dealing with this issue is that, you know, people always say, oh, my job as the doctor is to just give it to him straight, just give it to him how I know it. Um, but that actually is a really, really um Unfortunate attitude when you're dealing with something that you just have to be conscious of the fact is a stigmatized issue Right like you are dealing with a sensitive issue. There is no way around it Like you are potentially contributing to stigma that will not only emotionally but potentially physically harm your client patient Right, it's sort of like, you know When I was at the doctor's office as a child and you know my doctor she probably thought she was just doing I'm just doing my job I'm just telling you you're, you're eight pounds too heavy, you know, just doing my job Um, But it's not the same as telling me that I have, you know, some sort of like, you know, treatable thing that no one cares about. You know, like it's just, it's not, it doesn't, it carries a very, very, it has a different cultural meaning. And if you're not sensitive to that as a clinician, you could actually be harming me. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. Absolutely.
0: And, and if you and if you um, do uh, recommend follow up for somebody for whatever reason, how likely are they going to be to come back? And then what um, what impact does that have on their quality of life and long term physical health and and emotional well being as well? Um, mm-hmm. You know, if somebody if you want somebody to um, to return for their medical appointments, and you want somebody to take their medication as it's right. meant, as as it's meant to be prescribed, then mm. you better treat them well, basically. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I feel like there's a lot, I'm sure you've also mentioned this on other episodes, right? Like there's huge body of evidence to suggest that one of the reasons why the, you know, correlation of quote early death with fatness is literally is is like in many ways can be fully explained by the fact that fat people don't want to go to the doctor because they don't want to be oppressed and stigmatized by their doctors. You know, like it's just, um, yeah, it's heartbreaking Mm. that somebody would, you know, I mean, like I, as a child, I remember that very well, right? Like just, I just didn't want to get on. I just didn't want to go. I didn't want to get on the scale. I didn't want to be fat shamed.
0: Mm. And it's really interesting. There's, there's some, um, there's been some recent uh, uh, programs, I guess, or or pieces of research here in Australia where they've wanted to weigh kids long-term, where they've wanted to do longitudinal studies of of children long-term. Um, and in, uh, in New South Wales, which is not the state I live, but they've wanted to – any time a child goes to the doctor for any reason, that they would be weighed. And there's been a massive uproar here because it's like – um, not only does that start a possible um, uh, uh, bad relationship with medical, with, uh, you know, um, going to the doctors, doctor. in yeah, doctors in general, um, but also if that's the expectation is when I go to the doctor, I will be weighed. And it, it starts that kind of monitoring, that, that that policing of the self and that policing of, of the body um, that. It, it, until we can until we have a way where we can monitor somebody's health and well-being whether that includes weight or not in a completely neutral compassionate way mm-hmm. then i don't i don't understand why we do it there, it is possible to do it in a neutral way but Doing it in a neutral way does not guarantee that the person on the other end of the experience, so the person being weighed, is going to interpret that as neutral. You can be, I, I'd say to dietitians all the time, you can be as nice as pie about mm-hmm. weighing somebody. You can be the nicest person in the whole freaking world, but mm-hmm. if the person who you are weighing has had a distressing or traumatic experience with being weighed previously, right. hello, you are right. reacting that.
1: Right, exactly. It goes back to the fact that, like, it just, like, your behaviors around this or your feelings about this are irrelevant when you're dealing right. with something that is inherently stigmatized and inherently biased, right? right. Or, like, there's, like, inherent bias around the issue. You don't, it's not just about how you behave, you know, it's, it's also about what the meaning of weight may be to your patients, which, exactly. unfortunately, in this culture and this um, climate uh, is probably going to be very negative.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: So so there are a lot of challenges I guess for for wellness professionals and and um and dietitians in running a business and in um and in having a practice where health at every size is the is the paradigm that they wish to practice in, and and we were talking a little bit um, uh, off air about um, you know some of the challenges about having a, a an objectively minority point of view and and this sense of swimming upstream. So, and I know you have some wonderful wisdom around this. So I guess I just wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about you know what are some of the challenges about running a practice in this paradigm.
1: Yeah, so it seems to me that the easiest way to break them down is sort of um, challenges that you face with your clients or patients specifically. And... challenges that you might face with other professionals, right? Whether that be within like a bureau- sort of bureaucratic administration sort of situation, if you work at a hospital or work with other wellness professionals who aren't particularly haze friendly, I see that a lot, right? Where sort of it's political challenges with how do I actually give my clients and patients the treatment that I believe they need and deserve when I'm working within a system and within a uh, broader framework of uh, health professionals who are not offering that level of care so that's sort of one challenge is sort of the political bureaucratic challenge of working in an industry where most other professionals are not on your same page that's sort of number one right and then also obviously working with clients themselves right I mean there's a lot of challenges with working with clients and patients themselves by virtue of the fact that most of your clients and patients depending on where they come from but if you just assume you're taking a random slice of the population most of them are going to assume that they are coming to you for the purpose of weight loss or for the purpose of weight control or that weight control as an ultimate goal for them in their eating behaviors or health practices or whatnot, right? And so, you know, I kind of think of the challenges as sort of being able to, you know, from a professional perspective, I think of the challenges sort of kind of falling into one or both of those umbrellas. It's like my challenges with other professionals in the space, you know, which can vary depending on your particular position, but those are absolutely going to come up. And then also challenges with clients and patients themselves who also typically are going to assume um. Unless, you know, unless you are amazing at marketing yourself really and like kind of weed out people who don't want that kind of care, mm-hmm. um, you know, are, the, clients and patients themselves are also probably going to assume that you know thin is good and fat is bad right and sort of buy into the weight neutral paradigm Um, and so i think that those are you know it's kind of sometimes it's just helpful just to sort of break down what are the challenges i'm facing they're going to fall into one of those two buckets Um, i'm sure that you've sort of seen this Um, and i think that there are sort of different ways to approach the challenges in each of these buckets Um, depending on the situation you're in, right? So if you're in private practice, you're going to see one set of challenges when it comes to clients and patients. Um, If you are, uh, you know, how people are finding you, I think is a big thing with clients and patients, right? Like are the clients and patients who are coming to you, people who sort of know what you're about in advance and that's why they're seeking you out because they want a haze professional Mm -hmm. Um, or are you introducing them to, are you introducing this to them for the first time, right? And so, you know, those, this is a huge conversation, basically, to answer your question. There's a lot of potential um, issues that come up, but I sort of see it as um, in my career, certainly, and um, in speaking with you know many other professionals around. That it seems like the the issues that can come up for professionals sort of fall into one of those two categories.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of the a lot of the questions that come up, especially for dietitians in private practice, is <clears throat> is one of those two. It's like, how do I market myself so I can maximize the uh, the clientele who already have a basic understanding of what I'm all about? So I don't need to necessarily start from the start. And uh, like you said, the other side of it is, you know, what happens if I get a referral from a specialist or from a doctor um, for whatever reason? And I work in this paradigm, but the person coming to see me never heard of it. No idea what it's all about. You know, where do I start? So that's something that um, you know, in the in the um, hazy hazy world, I guess. Luckily, there's quite a bit of information around about how how practitioners can um, develop a language around it, and how can, how they can kind of develop a way of explaining what they do without. Um, without, I guess, freaking out their right. patient because if, right. if if there's if there's if it's not something they've heard before, then it's then it can be kind of tricky. Like, do you have any do you have any kind of favorite phrases for people that are completely completely new to it?
1: Um, well, so for for professionals who are speaking to that population, yeah. I'll just say that like something to keep in mind or a question to ask yourself that I ask myself frequently, right, is how do I meet this person where they are without compromising my integrity, without compromising or saying any harmful things, right? Like I've heard so many people say like, oh yeah, sure, I'm gonna help them effectively try to lose weight because, you know, they're just not ready to hear it the other way and I'm meeting them where they are. That's not where meeting someone where they are is, right? Like in my opinion, that's not an effective use of the phrase meeting someone where they are. The, The question, you know, how do I meet someone where they are has to be sort of buffered with, you know, I'm meeting someone where they are, Whilst effectively, you know, meeting them where they are and trying to sort of take them to the next level of understanding that sort of makes sense in the logical, um, sort of in a a logical steps towards weight and body and like health neutrality um, without at any point compromising or saying anything that I wouldn't want to say publicly to 100,000 Hayes Mm -hmm. professionals. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, (laughs) totally. Yeah, like, uh, um, And I think that that is a kind of the, the balancing act, right? And that's going to look different for different people. Um, mm-hmm. For me personally, uh, sort of my perspective is that your clients are actually, you know, despite the fact that, you know, struggling with eating disorders, you know, in their minds, this disordered behavior is rational, right? Like mm-hmm. all human beings are inherently rational in the sense that they're always doing that for whatever reason they think is in their best interest, even if that were to be a self harming behavior in their minds, they are doing it to some for some reason right mm-hmm. and I think that meeting people where they are often is about sort of like figuring out what reasons they believe this particular self harming behavior, whether it be dieting or anything else, seems rational to them and sort of helping them work out um, you know, uh, helping them sort of work through to the other side, you know, potentially the reasons why maybe that behavior isn't rational and sort of like actually sort of walking them through that process of changing the way they think about their behaviors. Right. So just to give you an example, I'm going to take this out of the theoretical and into the practical a little bit. Um, when I was in treatment, you know, basically I was told something to the effect of don't exercise more than three times a week because, you know, you're in recovery and that's just the way it is, right? You could just relapse. You could just be in, you know, it's just eating disorder, um, you know, trigger. Just don't exercise more than three times a week or, or whatever the situation was. It was sort of like a just do this mentality without any explanation for to, to me as to what the actual theory was or why that was legitimate in my best interest as a person who for whatever reason thought that it made sense to work out every single day, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, until it was sort of broken down to me, you know, until it was sort of, until I really started to get to the point where it's like, oh yeah, like working out past the point that my body is actually like physically capable, you know, feels actually physically comfortable doing is going to have these negative consequences on my life, is going to have these kinds of, you know, negative effects on my life. Until I was able to really connect personally as a patient to the reasons why I wasn't quote supposed to do, you know, to the reasons why these people were telling me not to do a certain thing, I wasn't going to do that, right? I was going to be a non-compliant patient, right? Like unless I, and so I feel like one of the problems that I see in recovery all the time is that like, A lot of times I see, uh, and certainly I was on the receiving end of this as a patient, like people telling me how to perform recovery, and this is something we talked about briefly off air as well, right? People were sort of telling me how to perform recovery, but I didn't really understand really the underlying theory behind how this was affecting me personally and really understanding why it was so important for me to really change my relationship with exercise and how the way I was currently working out and the way I was currently thinking about working out Was really having a negative impact on my life that I deemed important or that I deemed painful as a patient. Right. Um. And so I think that that was sort of um, just to like give an example of what it means to sort of meet somebody where they are, you know, is like sort of really getting into with patients. Um, where they are uh, sort of helping people really understand the pain that is being caused to them by mm. specific kinds of behaviors or specific kinds of thought patterns sort of help them get to the point where they can, they actually get to the point where they're like, I don't want to do that anymore. I mm. see how this is harmful. I really can see and understand how this is harmful to me rather than just teaching somebody how to perform recovery without mm. helping them understand the theory behind it. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's just an example. I don't know if you, um, Kind of like relate
0: to that or see that like, but, oh, yeah yeah absolutely and we we were talking a little bit uh, before off air about um quote-unquote performing and I think that um just when when you said that before I was like oh my god that's the word yes that's the word because um it's not only not only can we as as wellness professionals um uh you know um Collude with the idea of performing um, eating disorder recovery, or 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 diet recovery, or body hatred recovery, Um, Mm -hmm. but that we can also do this ourselves, can't we? In our professional lives, is we can kind of perform the act of a haze professional or or body positive professional or something, and kind of not really understand what lies underneath. So, do you mind talking a little bit about that? Because I see that quite a bit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean,
1: another example, another like obvious example that always comes up, like just like just on the patient level is something like, you know, like don't get on the scale. Like I think that a lot of people tell their clients like don't get on the scale, but they're not actually getting into a conversation about like really why the scale is like, actually legitimately harming their lives and the patient's not connected with the scale as being harmful they think of the scale as this other thing that they're not supposed to do but they really want to do it for x you know and like you know all of these types of things so it's again it's sort of i see a lot of this in recovery uh treatment both for the way that clinicians are describing these things to patients, but also the clinicians themselves, right? Is like, I, recovery looks like X. And so I'm going to try to do recovery and I'm going to tell people, you know, to do recovery X way. And I'm going to tell my clients or tell my patients to do recovery X ways, like do the things, don't get on the scale, work out three times a week only, you know, whatever the things are that they're sort of, um uh, what they believe recovery effectively looks like. And of course the reality of the situation is that recovery is not a thing that looks any particular way necessarily, right? Recovery, actual real recovery is a, is a, is a new understanding of food and body is a new, totally new relationship with food and body. It's very, it's much deeper. It has to do with like a complete shift in perception, right? And if that perception shift in perception isn't happening, I would make the argument that actually, you know, doesn't really I mean it matters what people are doing obviously physically assuming that they're you know not endangering their bodies right but I think to some extent right like if you're not getting to the core of the perception shift and not really deeply understanding the theory of why we say the things that we say in the body positive movement why we do the things that we do in the body positive movement like we're not sort of getting deeper into the theory um, and we're just sort of performing the lines saying the lines you know performing the do's and don'ts of recovery, um, we're not actually really healing anything, and I think that there's a lot of situations in which people say um, kind of negative or harmful, uh, sort of accidentally negative or harmful things yeah. to their clients because they clearly don't under they don't clearly don't actually understand the theory. They're just doing the, they're just attempting to do the performance, and attempting to do the performance usually doesn't. Um, to get, it, it usually doesn't get you all the way there. There's a lot of room for error if you're just trying to kind of follow a script rather than like really having a deep understanding of the theory itself and really having a perception, perception shift within yourself as a clinician. Mm-hmm. So, and wh- I think one of the other reasons this is challenging is because most clinicians are just, are, a lot of them, right, are sort of trained in this like science, science, research, research, fact, 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 sort of way of operating and way of thinking, right, they like spew out research and they're not necessarily critically, not all the time, right, are not always necessarily trained to sort of critically analyze the theory behind it, not necessarily sort of um, applying things like, you know, critiquing with a social justice lens what they're reading, these kinds of things. And if that's not happening, right, if that sort of theoretical understanding and shift in theoretical understanding isn't happening, it's so easy to say accidentally fatphobic things, accidentally Mm -hmm. mental things to your clients because you know you can't memorize the answer to, to you know there, there's no and in a lot of situations there won't be a perfect answer to that question if you're going by a script you really do have to sort of understand the theory in a deeper way which means using a part of your brain that may not have been tested in, in university right or in a nutrition class um, so does that kind of answer your question
0: yeah absolutely yeah it it's, it's interesting because um you know obviously you and I both um being heavily involved in this in this space and seeing how other fellow health professionals um, are expressing um, the way that they work and it's interesting how sometimes um when we're when we're when we don't look beyond what seems obvious in terms of maybe behaviors um that we actually can accidentally, as you say, accidentally collude with uh, the themes of diet mentality. I'll give you an example. So the idea that recovery, as you said, quote unquote, recovery is a place or that um, wellness is right. Or it's a place. And I think that what, sometimes professionals can do is we can, because we don't understand the deeper stuff, we can collude with the idea with clients and patients that we are aiming for a place, which for me feels like, Diet (laughs) mentality, you know, it's like this achievement, you know.
1: Well, and the reason, I mean, if you think about it, if we did not have the weight normative paradigm, right? If we weren't working within this, you know, sort of grander weight normative paradigm, it's really questionable as to whether or not we would think of health as a binary or not, or if we would think of recovery as a binary, right? I mean, I think that oftentimes that really stems from the same idea of like, okay, today I'm X weight, and and six months from now I'm trying. I'm trying to be Y weight, right? I mean, that is a very, that's sort of how dieting theoretically works. It's like, I'm here and I want to be there, right? And that's where this sort of idea, like, you know, weight being a place that I'm at today and then I can be in a different place tomorrow right? is sort of, um, that's, you know, kind of diet mentality sort of stems from that idea, it sort of stems from, you know, I often say, like, you know, if somebody says to me, what's diet mentality, I'm like, okay, well, let's start with how would you act and behave if there was no such thing as thin-, as thin or fat, right? If there were no such thing as thin or fat, like how would you think about food? How would you behave around this? What would your perceptions of health be? All of these things. And so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, oftentimes we apply a lot of the same kind of thinking, right? We're trained to think about food. We're trained to think about food in the way in this sort of, oh, well, I want to be X weight, excuse me, I'm X weight now, and I want to be Y weight tomorrow. And we do that exact same, oh, I'm, in, I'm doing X in my recovery today, and I want to do Y in my recovery tomorrow, right? It's very similar. We just sort of transpose or transfer over that same way of thinking mm. into um, Mm. into our recovery practice, right. Which is not useful. I mean, Deb Burgard, who's one of my greatest sort of mentors in this space, who I know, you know, um, her work well, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. Yeah, she always says, you know, I'm, I'm, she said to me recently on an interview that I did for one of my programs, she said, I'm really not comfortable with the word goals at all. Mm -hmm. Um, when, you know, she's like, I'm, she said, I think to use her direct quote, she said, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the word goals at all when it comes Mm to recovery speak. Mm -hmm. Um, or when it comes, we were, we were specifically talking about body confidence, right? Like we were talking about, you know, what is the goal of body confidence? Um, is the goal to find yourself beautiful? the goal to find yourself attractive? Is the goal something else entirely? I was sort of asking her this as, a, as an interviewer. And she said, you know, Isabel, I'm just not even sure I'm comfortable with the word goals at all in this conversation, um, I, you know, yeah. which was really insightful. Like, But yeah. that is how we treat recovery, right? I mean, that's how we treat, that is how sort of culturally we treat a lot of um, that's uh, how we treat a lot of things. I mean, it's certainly not just from diet mentality. It's also sort of, I think, the very cultural Western, like post Enlightenment idea this mm-hmm. idea of, I have goals and achievement and success, failure, black white thinking, right? Yeah,
0: um, but, but it's, it's interesting. It's it's interesting how even um, a recovery or wellness focused ideas can be um, can be kind of trodden on by um, diet mentality as well. So for example, when you, when you said that I had it, I had uh, an experience only recently, only last week when I was, um, presenting a workshop to a group of, um, fellow dietitians and somebody used the word goals. And I had this visceral reaction to that because Mm -hmm. I think now I've just become so, um, I guess sensitive, I guess to the Mm -hmm. language to language mm-hmm. and anything that feels like it's a, there is a place and it's mm-hmm. one place. And our quote unquote job is to help help people to right. get to that place. Whereas right. the, the human experience is, is just so vast, isn't it? You know, there is, and being able to, um, to sink into the idea of accepting that maybe there is no one place. Holy mm-hmm. shit balls. That's mm-hmm. scary. Like that mm-hmm. is that's quite scary if, if, if somebody, if you were to enter into that conversation of maybe there is no one place. I mean, it sounds so, mm-hmm. um, well, it feels very out of control, right? right that exactly. That's- you know, that sort of
1: goes to the core of what people are really, really terrified of in life, but certainly in the context of food right? right. Um, quote, being out of control. Right. It's getting like, Oh my God. You know, I mean, you know, of course like eating disorders just like often sort of said, Oh, it's a, it's a disease of control. Right. Like that's sort of like the big quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that it is, you know, I think oftentimes what we're really trying to do is sort of like helping, you know, what recovery in many ways is about in my opinion is, sort of getting comfortable with the lack of control, right? Like getting comfortable with, getting comfortable with the gray, getting comfortable with, with non-binary understanding of yourself, non-binary understanding of food, non-binary, right? Not, you know, like relinquishing the desire to want to label everything, you know, all of these ideas are really at the core of the shift in perception that I'm talking about that needs to, underlay, right, that needs to be the root and foundation of how therapists and how nutritionists are speaking with their clients and patients, how patients themselves are starting to, um, you know, relate differently to their own food and to their own bodies, Right. So that's sort of, you know, now we're starting to get into the sort of bigger conversation of like the deeper theory that you're just not going to learn in university probably. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no,
0: (laughs) but luckily, I mean, luckily these days, there's lots of spaces where people can learn where health professionals can learn and, and the general Mm -hmm. public and community members can learn Mm -hmm. more about these, even if they're not fully quote unquote ready to dive Mm -hmm. in, you know, it's okay to open the door a little crack just take a little peek, take a little peek, see what you think. It's okay to shut the door again. You can open it another (laughs) time. And you know, just being open to that. So, I mean, luckily these days, certainly when I graduated almost 20 years ago, there was no these conversations just weren't had. So I was feeling very isolated and I felt, um, not only felt isolated I felt very I felt like I was doing it wrong and so that unfortunately shaped my early career was feeling like I was doing it wrong somehow but you know turns out Isabel that maybe um maybe I wasn't doing it wrong after all (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know (laughs) but just yeah just intuitively knew that there was lots of things that I'd been taught that were just really unhelpful. So right. and now I really, really, really wanted to invite you to speak about um, some very exciting, um, some very exciting activities that you've kind of got on the horizon. So please tell us about what's going on. Yeah, well, so um, as you
1: know, I annually run a program for for those sort of in the midst of um, uh, their recovery process, right? Like a little on their recovery journey is my, my Stop Fighting Food Masterclass, which I'll be launching again for the probably likely the last time live um, in September, which is, you know crazy because I've been running this now for yeah. five years. So the, oh, possibly the final last live masterclass for actual, for clients themselves, for those who are actually sort of in the throes um, in various different places in their recovery who want to receive this sort of sort of social justice uh, perspective, get a haze perspective on intuitive eating, those kinds of things, um, sort of a non-diet approach in a little bit more of a theoretical framework outside of just the performance of, mm. it, of eat this way, don't eat that way, but actually sort of really looking at the theory of, you know, what is disordered thinking um, and really starting to sort of break that down into, you know, what is diet mentality and how do I start to um, kind of in a, on a deeper level start to actually uh, change the way I think about food and my body um, outside of these, this context of black and white, right and wrong, success, failure, binaries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that will be happening in September, likely for the per- last time, because I'm going to be focusing on, um, doing teacher trainings and mentorship for professionals. I'm also, uh, I do a lot of, uh, uh business coaching for people who want to run body positive businesses and mm, awesome. friendly businesses. So that's going to be a big focus of the mentorship program as well. So that is so that.
0: exciting. Oh my gosh. Yes. And, and much needed, to be honest, really, really much because, because I think that, um, people in this body, body positive, um, space, wellness professionals who want to run a business off the back of health at every size, um, principles and paradigm Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, to be able to get that mentorship and, and coaching from somebody who's so experienced like yourself is, oh my gosh, so valuable. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really excited. (laughs) And, um, what I can do is um, let everybody know when everything's going to be launched. And um, so stop finding food possibly for the last time. Where, where, where in in September Um, and And, and uh, yeah,
1: mentorship, Mm. yeah, mentorship, TBD, but likely when this is out, you will know. So uh, we'll have the dates probably in the show notes in the
0: notes. Um, Yeah,
1: exactly. But in the meantime, you know, I always say like if anyone is interested in sort of in a little bit more of the Um, you know, really, I think whether I'm talking to clients or whether I'm talking to professionals sort of doing teacher training, I'm pretty focused on, okay, if we took away sort of the performance elements of this is what recovery looks like on a physical level, and really thought about what recovery looks like as far as changing our attitudes, changing the way we think, changing sort of the underlying theory of how do I relate to my body and my um, and my food. um, then definitely sign up for my email list because that's sort of where I'm sharing these opinions. Sharing, I do a lot of critique around intuitive eating as it comes to this. Right, I think one of the you've probably heard me say one of my biggest um, sort of challenges around so many intuitive eating professionals is that the, you know they teach what I consider to be the intuitive eating or the hunger and fullness diet diet.
0: Right? Yes, yeah,
1: yes, where it's all about even you're hungry, you stop when you're. It's all about performance rather than about an actual mental shift, an actual change of consciousness that has to occur to really um, have a radical shift in your relationship with food. So if anyone's interested in that particular topic, definitely uh, sign up for my email list. You'll get quite a bit of information about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So,
1: up at com.
0: Perfect. Oh my gosh. You're such a pro. You're such a pro. I, I'm, I apologize. I interrupted you exactly when you said your, um, exactly when you said your, your website details. But um, yeah, I, I love getting your weekly-ish um, <laughs> emails because I think it, they, they're just a really nice reminder. Really great reminder, and um, I know you have a very unique style isabel you 've got a re- very dynamic um, give it to you straight type of style which I think people really appreciate in lots mm-hmm. of ways um, you know and not everybody um, shares that style, but I think there's something we can learn from from being able to um, understand you know like we were talking about before the the kind of underlying theory of what Um, sits behind behind and underneath Hayes Theory and to be able to bring this to our clients and our communities in a way that's authentic to us. So we don't, we don't have to be um, like you and I are fairly um, uh, excitable, I guess, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) type of people, type of people, Mm -hmm. high energy type of people. And, um, and that you can use your own style. You can use your own energy, your own personality mm-hmm. and just make sure things are authentic to you. So, and that's right, something right. I know that you're really.
1: And in alignment with yeah. you know, sort of the movement. I mean, I think that's a whole other conversation that we could get to possibly on another episode, but um, you know, I think there's a, there's a, you know, everyone can have their own style their own, um, sort of uh, way of sharing these principles. But I do think that it is sort of, you know, the responsibility of all practitioners to, um, if they're going to be using the terms body positivity or the terms haze to really understand what those terms are, very much mean and what the historical context of those words are. So as not to kind of reappropriate them in a way that might not be in alignment with the movement. So I'll just say that as a caveat. Yeah,
0: (laughs) Yeah. absolutely. And probably um, what would be helpful at this point to say is that if anybody hasn't listened to your interviews, both of them with um, Christy Harrison on food Psych podcast, then you, um, then you've spoken quite a lot about that background on those two podcasts. So, so maybe go back and and listen to that because I, I loved those. I thought you two just did just Mm -hmm. such a stellar job, really.
1: Oh, good. Yeah. Mm. I'm so, so glad. Thank you so much. Well, thanks Mm -hmm. so much for
0: having me, Fiona. This was so fun. You're welcome. I know. Wasn't it fun? This is like the best start to my day ever. So I'm going to go grab myself, um, I think maybe another coffee and a yummy breakfast. And I really look forward to connecting with you again soon. Perfect. Sounds good, Fiona. Talk soon. Thanks a lot, Isabel. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone!